Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Jessica Lay, PhD. Jessica is a psychotherapist who specializes in pediatric psychology, who has a deep love for educating people about mental health through relatable and digestible content. So Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I gave a, uh, a brief introduction about who you are, but so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Can you kind of give us some background about yourself and tell us your story? Absolutely. So I'm Jessica, like you said, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and I specialize in pediatric psychology. Currently I work in a children's hospital and there I have two roles. Uh, so a day and a half a week, I work outpatient in our adolescent medicine clinic. And there I do what people consider like traditional psychotherapy outpatient, um, where I primarily see things like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and do a lot of LGBTQ plus healthcare. And then the other three and a half days a week, I work medical inpatient. So a lot of people, when they think psychologist, hospital, they think psychiatric inpatient, but I work medical inpatient. And there I work with children and teens with chronic medical conditions, those who are receiving like a new diagnosis, have a prolonged hospital stay for some type of illness or injury, um, physical traumas such as car accidents, gunshot wounds, as well as um, those that are medicalized or hospitalized medically for eating disorders. So uh, I guess a little bit about my story, how I um, ended up here. I am definitely in a different place than I ever expected to be. Uh, growing up, you know, I, I had a love for chemistry. And at 12 years old, I was like, I'm going to go to college and become a chemist, go to pharmacy school, become a pharmacist. And that was my goal since 12 years old. Um, throughout high school, I did have my own mental health struggles, struggled a lot with depression. I've always been very anxious, went to therapy, took a psychology course in high school, liked it, but I was like, no, I'm going to become a pharmacist. Um, and then I went to college and I was a chemistry major and a little bit of a trigger warning here. I'm about to talk about suicide, but the November of my freshman year, my cousin Jeff died by suicide. Um, I had just seen him a few days before at Thanksgiving. Um, and I, I to, to this day still say that other than now, maybe the birth of my daughter, that has been the most impactful moment of my life, finding out that he had died, um, especially just seeing him a few days before. Um, after he died, I got back into therapy. I started volunteering for a nonprofit, Mental Health America, our local chapter um, in the city I went to college, and I started working on their crisis hotline. So I was doing all this stuff with mental health, helping people struggling with their own thoughts of harm to self, others, and I'm still like, but no, I'm going to go to pharmacy school. <laughs> um, and by the end of my sophomore year, um, I had taken a psychology class, and I realized that I didn't like chemistry as much as I used to. Uh, I really wanted to help people in a different way. So I switched my major to psychology, graduated college and went to a master's program. So a two years master's program in clinical psychology. And then I applied to PhD programs in clinical psychology, did not get in the first time, which is not um, uncommon at all because uh, PhD programs in clinical psychology are uh, very competitive. So I took a year off and I worked. I taught at a community college that was local to me. And I also did psychological assessments, applied to PhD programs again, got in and 
my thought process of going to a PhD rather than a PsyD is because I wanted to do research and teach. I never wanted to do clinical work. I knew I was going to have to for my program, but my goal was to do research on suicide, um, suicide prevention, intervention, and then become basically a college professor and teach because I love doing that. And I did do research on suicide, but in clinical psychology PhD programs, you have to do clinical work. And so my program was generalist focus, which means we had to work at least one rotation with adults, one rotation with children. Um, and nobody in my cohort wanted to work with kids. So I was like, sure, I'll take the child rotation, whatever. Like, I'm not going to do clinical work anyways. And I loved working with children. Um, my program was also integrated primary care focus, meaning um, we worked in integrated health settings uh, that where I went to graduate school was very rural. So um, that area really tried to integrate like social workers, psychologists, other mental health professionals into medical settings to increase access to care. So I got to work in medical settings and I absolutely loved the integration between physical health and mental health. And so after a few years in my graduate program, I realized that I really wanted to do clinical work in a medical setting, primarily with children and teens. So I completed my clinical internship, which is the last year of any clinical psychology doctorate program, which was at a children's hospital. And then I did a postdoctoral fellowship at a children's hospital. And that is where I am still working uh, today, approaching five years uh, later because um, they hired me on. And yeah, that's just kind of, I know that was long, but also very short of my story of how I got here. Wow. No, that was great. Thank you. Um, I mean, it really shows the the road and your journey to get to where you are and all the things that you had to go through as well. And um, mm -hmm. I'm glad that you took that, you know, the job working with children, because I, I think children are great and especially working with them in a the capacity where you can help them and guide them. Um, so, and it seems like you Absolutely. were perfect for it. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. So when I was researching you and what you do um, to prepare for the interview, I, I saw something on your website that was really intriguing. And like we were talking about before we started recording, you know, I said that it made you really relatable and it just showed that, you know, even though you're a therapist and you, you've done all this work and you have all these accolades that you're still just like everybody else. And that made me feel super inclined to want to just talk to you and, and get your feedback. Um, what it was, was that you said, um, even though you're accomplished, you struggle with a lot of things. Um, and you said, from the outside, it appears I have it all together. But on the inside, I struggle and still do with feelings of self-doubt, anxiety, and falling prey to my inner critic. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So when we were actually talking about this a little bit before we hit record, but in general, I think there is this misconception that therapists, psychologists, those in the mental health field have their stuff together. Like they, they got it all. Um, and in reality, kind of like I shared with my story, a lot of us go into this field because of our own personal experiences, whether it's something we have personally struggled with or witnessed somebody in our life struggle with. And therapists, psychologists, we're all humans. We have human emotions and we're going to struggle at times. So as for like that specific like sentence that you read, pretty much my entire life, I have been told I'm like put together, I'm so mature, accomplished, like how do you do it all? Insert any other synonym there. Um, but if you ask the people like closest to me, so like I'm thinking of my mother, my sister, my husband, they can all tell you I have really, really struggled with anxiety pretty much my entire life. It's gotten a lot better, but there's still definitely moments. I mean, I had one this week that, you know, my husband was just simply asking me how a meeting at work went. And I just like broke down in tears while we were eating dinner because I was like so anxious, so stressed, so overwhelmed. Um, 
And I still struggle with self, self-doubt and doubt my abilities. You know, even though I've been a psychologist, um, I got licensed in 2019. So for approaching four years, you know, there's times I'm at work and I'm like, what am I even doing? Like, why did somebody trust me to, you know, do this or trust me to help their child with their mental health? Um, I second guess myself all the time. I over prepare for things. I mean, we were talking before we hit record. I always prepare for podcasts, but you know, even the intro that I just gave you about my story, I wrote it all out, even though I didn't need to and didn't look at it. But I, my anxiety tells me like, you're going to forget who you are. (laughs) So you Mm, need to over prepare mm. because it tries, it helps me feel like I have a sense of control, um, gets extremely stressed and overwhelmed. So all of that to say, like, I apparently hide things really well or apparently like look (laughs) put together um, with the exception of maybe those like that are closest to me. Um, But regardless of how somebody looks from the outside, therapist, psychologist or not, everybody at some point is struggling with something. And um, just because somebody has the look that they have it all together, they're in many ways might be struggling more because they feel like they have to give this persona. But yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like it's also very important for me as somebody on social media, as a psychologist to also be transparent that like I am human too. And I do have my struggles because it's, it's more relatable. And I know we're going to talk more about that, but hopefully that answered your question. I felt like I was rambling for a little bit. No, you weren't rambling. Um, it it's so refreshing to actually hear someone in your position say those things because instantly and immediately, I feel like we're the same. You know, th- mm-hmm. there's no reason why I I couldn't talk to you because we have the exact same struggles. You know, um, so that relatability, I feel like, kind of raises the bar for you in a big way because there's not. You don't, you don't get that a lot. You know, a lot of people just, they put on airs and, you know, they, they, you know, you heard the expression doing it for the gram, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. People just show the, only the good. And that, that detracts from the human aspect of just living, you know, because we all struggle and, and you telling your story and the way you tell it that relatability is, is gold. So thank you for being so transparent and for being vulnerable enough to share. Of course. Um, okay. So in 2020, you hired a business coach with a plan of starting a coaching business to help women. But then you realized that you thought this was something you should do and it wasn't really what you wanted to do. Right. So how was it that you got to the point where you started doing what truly makes you happy? I love this question because this is something I've talked about like on my Instagram before, but I don't really talk about it a lot anymore. Um, so 2020, you know, pandemic, everybody's looking for things to do. And a lot of my friends were getting into coaching as a way to like make an extra income. And I was like, I should do that too why not? So I hired a business coach and I, I, to this day, love her. We still are connected. Um, she helped me a ton. She's helped me get my podcast out there. Like, so I don't regret doing it, but even through the process of doing it, I just felt like I wasn't aligned with it. I was like, why am I actually doing this? Like my goal was I want to help. And specifically it was like women in helping professions like myself you know, I want to help women. And then I guess from everything I saw, I was like, coaching is clearly the way to do it, but I wasn't feeling fulfilled. It felt like more work. And I realized that at that time, I don't even know if content creation was like the title for what people do. But I was like, I really enjoy posting just mental health content on social media. You know, I've made a couple courses and stuff, but that didn't, really, really align. Um, and I love doing my podcast because I realized what my passion was, was getting information out there. Like it doesn't have to be, I'm going to make money 
off of running a program. Yes, money is always nice, but I realize money is not a value of mine. And really my value is helping people making mental health information in particular more accessible. And I can do that by creating Instagram posts, reels, things like that, whether or not I make money off of it. And that felt a lot more aligned with who I am. Um, And like I said, she did help me with starting my podcast. And that is something I love too. And once again, that is me getting information out there to people. And like, I mean, you have a podcast too. There are ways to monetize a podcast, but you know, my podcast isn't, you know, getting millions of downloads a week or anything. So it's not like I'm making a lot of money off of it. But once again, that's not my goal. My goal is to get information out to people who need it. So I think once I let go of the, what I felt like I should be doing and really did some self-reflection on what feels most aligned with me, that's what helped me kind of let go of that coaching and more just going into creating content that feels good for me, that feels aligned. Um, And that journey is a whole thing too. I used to like feel like I had to put out content every day and now it's more like, you know, okay, what's my podcast episode about this week? Let me put content out about that. Or, you know, during eating disorder awareness week or suicide prevention week, I'll put content out about that. And really, or this is an experience I had, let me share it. Um, And, you know, following more values alignment rather than pressures of societal or other expectations. I think that those pressures and expectations of what we should do, oh man, they can, they can really eat away at you because I have the same struggles, right? Because I'm like, okay, I Mm -hmm. have to do this. I have to do this. I have to make sure it looks like this and make sure it looks like that. And then on one day I was just like, just give someone the information, let them do what Mm -hmm. they want with it. You know? So I relate to you there as well. Yeah. Now the shoulds really get us. I mean, the shoulds from society. And I mean, you said a few moments ago, like, you know, doing it for the gram, posting it for the gram. Like, I think social media especially has really reinforced that should expectation. Like, oh, these people are doing this or this person got married by this age or this person's going on this vacation. I should be doing that too. And, um, that's hard. It's hard when so we're true. constantly comparing ourselves. So true. So very true. I'm glad you brought that up because like, like we were talking about, like if you look at what everyone else is doing, you start to say, well, you know, if I'm not doing that, I'm not good enough or I should be doing this or I should be doing that. Mm-hmm. That's really just not the case. So. Oh, absolutely not. And a lot of times we do things that we feel like we should do. And I'm thinking more within like a family system right now. Like if you come from a family of doctors and nurses and medical providers, you feel like you should become like a doctor, nurse, and anything like that. And if you do that and then you're like, I don't like this, you're not going to be happy doing what you do. And I think, and it's hard to sit with that discomfort and it's hard to reflect on, you know, why am I doing this thing? But I think the more that people can be introspective and self-reflect on the why that they're doing it. And is this truly making me happy? Does this align with who I am and the person I want to be that can help them kind of navigate, no, I don't want to be doing this. And and going against what we feel like we should do can be really scary. I don't want to dismiss that discomfort. But at the end of the day, it's your life. And if you want to do something that's against the shoulds that make you happy, do it. Amen. I agree. Thank you for um, touching on that. Because like you said, especially in family systems, if, if you're you know, supposed to do a certain thing that your parents tell you, or, you know, you, there's this, this expectation of what, who you should be or what you should do. And you don't Mm -hmm. do that. There's a lot of pushback and it can be uncomfortable, but if you wind up doing it just because you should, then again, you're not, you're not going to be happy. So it's a slippery slope. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so we talked about this a bit, and this was something that I mentioned too, is that it seems like therapists um, and psychologists literally have all the answers and have their stuff together. 
what does your life look like outside of work and what you do? I love this question. Um, one for the purpose of normalizing therapists being human, but also like, it's a good question for me because a lot of times when people ask me like, Oh, what do you do? Or tell me about yourself. I jump to my job. Um, so outside of work, um, I am married. I've been with my husband for 14 years, married, almost nine. We have a dog. Um, we have a two-year-old daughter, so uh, that takes up <laughs> a lot of time. Um, I absolutely love like working out, being active. Um, I, I work out every morning before I go to work because it's just something that makes me feel good. Um, I know I've already mentioned this, and this is mental health related. I do make mental health content on social media. I have two podcasts. Um, I love spending time with my family. Um, my my family is not local um, to us, but my husband's family is. So we try to spend a lot of family time. Um, so as you can imagine, outside of work, life is really busy. Um, it can be very stressful at times trying to keep up with balancing work, being a wife, being a mom, doing my other interests. Um, but yeah, it, it, one thing that's really important to me, like I talk about values a lot, but, you know, family is a, a huge value of mine and making sure that, you know, even though I have a very demanding job, I do prioritize and spend time with my family um, and also doing things just for me. It's hard, you know, in a helping profession, I'm always showing up for other people. And then obviously as a wife and mother, I'm showing up for other people. So that's like why working out or even just like reading, I don't read nearly as much as I would love to read. Um, or even going to the grocery store for me is like very therapeutic. If I get to go by myself, <laughs> I'm doing that later today. My husband's like, you can have your alone time at the grocery store. Um, but yeah, it's busy, but I, I'm a human just like everybody else. Like I have to pay bills go grocery shopping, get my kid everywhere, you know. I um I really wanted to dedicate some time to you being able to talk about who you are because like I said when I when I was researching you, I loved the the fact that you were so willing to just say this is me. I struggle, I'm human, but mm -hmm. I'm also all of these things, right? Um and and I I mm -hmm. really think that allowing for others to see that relatability will do so much. And maybe some people who are scared to to see a therapist, but if they say, oh, well, if she's a therapist, then I could talk to her. If I could talk to her, then maybe mm -hmm. I could talk to somebody else. So I wanted to, to, you know, really drive that home. So thank you for allowing me to have the first portion of the, the interview to be about you. Well, thank you for, um, thinking about that and, and doing that because I mean I, I love coming on and talking about like my expertise and stuff but uh, I don't get to talk about those things a lot so I appreciate you giving me the space to do it too that's my pleasure okay so now what you do <laughs> <laughs> what is pediatric psychology so I'm so glad you asked this question because a lot of people don't realize that pediatric psychology is different than child psychology. So pediatric psychology is a subfield of psychology that really attempts to address the psychological aspects of injury and illness and promoting health behaviors in children. So typically pediatric psychologists will work in some type of health setting, like a hospital or like a primary care, uh, with a, like pediatrician, family medicine, things like that. So it's really that integration between physical health and mental health. So this is different than like a child psychologist, which that individual would focus more on like child development and address behavioral and emotional concerns in children that aren't necessarily tied to any type of medical illness, physical injury, et cetera. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So I want to, kind of dig a little bit deeper now and start talking about trauma and the effects mm -hmm. of trauma. So my next question would be, what can trauma do to the brain? 
So this is a pretty loaded question because trauma can do a lot to the the brain. So before I answer this, I do want to make the disclaimer. I'm I'm don't consider myself a trauma specialist. I would argue that all good therapists and psychologists are trauma informed, and we all see trauma. But um, I would not consider myself a, a trauma specialist. Um, so there are people that know more about trauma and the brain than I do. Um, but I'm also a huge research nerd and like to read research. Um, for fun. So I do know a little bit about this. So when we experience a trauma, we go through trauma, our brainstem, which is basically the part of the brain that is responsible for survival instincts, and then autonomic bodily processes takes control. So we go into survival mode. Um, You all have everybody listening, you yourself have probably heard of like fight, fight or freeze. So this is when um, we go through a trauma, our sympathetic nervous system increases stress hormones and prepares the body to fight whatever the threat is, flee from the threat, or freeze. We stop and can't do anything. So that's when experiencing the trauma in our brain. And then after someone experiences trauma, there's a lot of research indicating that our brain does go through biological changes. So For example, the amygdala, which is responsible for survival-related threat um, and relating emotions to memories, becomes overstimulated. So our amygdala is always on high alert. It looks for threat and perceives threat everywhere. So I think of, you know, maybe somebody experienced some type of trauma at war. That's a very classic example. So we hear a lot on, like, um, 4th of July when fireworks go off, the amygdala is going to be overstimulated and perceive the fireworks as a threat because of the trauma of being in a war zone. Um, Trauma can also impact the hippocampus, which is involved in memory consolidation. Um, And the hippocampus research suggests becomes underactive. So basically our mind and body continue to be in reactive mode because they have not received the information that the threat is actually in the past. It's it's a memory. It's not continuously still going on. Um, other areas of the brain affected are prefrontal cortex, so at the front of our brain, which is responsible for higher level thinking, thinking reasoning, things like that. Um, research shows that there is decreased function and activation in the prefrontal cortex um, when exposed to traumatic reminders. So we're not able to, you know, process, plan ahead, um, engage in that higher level thinking when exposed to reminders of the trauma. Um, trauma also results in the elevated uh, elevation of stress hormones, um, which may interfere with our body's ability to regulate itself. The sympathetic nervous system remains highly active, um, which can lead to fatigue. So like I said at the beginning, this is such a loaded uh, question, but those are some of the main areas that have been researched with regard to trauma in the brain. Basically, it, it affects many, many aspects of the brain in some. I don't know if I can uh, accept that you're not an expert. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I also, like I said, I like research. So I like to be informed because even though like I don't specifically seek out trauma, I work with medical trauma every Mm -hmm. single day. So I need to know about trauma, obviously, but thank you for the compliment. Yeah. It sounds like you do for sure. (laughs) Um, Okay. So another thing that uh, trauma may cause people to do, or another symptom of trauma could be overthinking, right? What can cause someone to overthink and jump to worst case scenarios? Well, you answered one of the things yourself. Trauma can definitely um, do that. So when we think of overthinking in particularly, uh, in particular, overthinking is usually a, a tech, a technique. I'm putting that in quotes that people try to use to control a situation that they can't. So our brain tries to tell us if we can think of every possible outcome situation, we somehow have control over this thing that in many cases is outside of our control. 
And then with regard to jumping to worst case scenarios, we actually call that in the mental health field, a cognitive distortion. Um, so it's a pattern of distorted thinking that makes us perceive reality inaccurately. So things that can cause both overthinking and jumping to worst case scenarios, anxiety, because like I said, when our brain is very anxious, when our body's anxious, the thing that calms anxiety a lot of times is seeking control. So we try to either overthink to get that control, or a lot of times we will convince ourselves, if I think of the worst possible scenario, then I'm quote unquote prepared for that to happen. But in reality, thinking of the worst possible situation just reinforces our anxiety because now we're thinking of this awful thing. Um, depression can cause both of these things. And going back to the first point you made about trauma, we know that when people experience trauma, yes, they could end up with PTSD, but they may also just have anxiety, depression. Um, we also see overthinking, jumping to worst case scenarios in OCD. Um, stress can cause people to overthink, uh, jump to worst case scenario. We also see like outside of trauma and kind of clinical mental health diagnoses, individuals that are high in perfectionism or high overachievers tend to also engage in overthinking or jumping to that worst case. And it all kind of goes back to that seeking control, feeling like, okay, if I think about the situation over and over again, if I think of all the possibilities, I have some type of control or I'm prepared. And in reality, like, yeah, maybe it may lessen that anxiety temporarily, but then you're just thinking about the situation much longer than you need to heightening your anxiety about it. Mm -hmm. It's just like a vicious cycle that you can get caught in because con control can ease, you know, anxiety, right? But if, if it's not real control Absolutely. or if it's just the illusion of control, then all you're doing is adding to your anxiety. So um, I know this is a loaded question Absolutely. as well, but what are some... <laughs> causes of anxiety. And I know this could be a podcast in and of itself, but I just wanted you to, to kind of touch on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So first of all, whenever I talk about anxiety, either on my platforms or in podcasts, I always like to first state that anxiety is a normal human emotion. Like we all will experience anxiety at some point. And in many ways, it's actually very adaptive. I always give this example because it doesn't well, most people, I guess, would not be in this situation. But if a bear is running at you, anxiety is a good thing because it's going to signal to you a threat. But anxiety disorders are what most people think of when they think of anxiety. So when our anxiety starts interfering with our ability to function. So when we think of causes for anxiety disorders, there are many. Like you said, this is a loaded question. So genetics plays a role. So if you have a family member that has anxiety, you are at increased risk for having anxiety. It doesn't mean you absolutely will, but your risk at baseline is going to be higher than somebody that does not have any genetically related individuals um, with anxiety. Stress can um, cause anxiety. So a lot of times people will use the two terms interchangeably, but like when stress becomes chronic, it can lead people to become more anxious. Trauma, like we already talked about, um, can cause anxiety. Drugs or alcohol use, both the utilization of them, but also the withdrawals from them can trigger anxiety. Medical illnesses can cause anxiety. I see that a lot in my work. So, you know, a previously healthy kid, uh, no history of mental health concerns, gets a medical illness, chronic medical diagnosis, and then anxiety comes along with that. Um, certain personality characteristics are more associated with uh, developing anxiety disorders, such as perfectionism, going back to that overthinking, um, as well as the personality trait of neuroticism. Um, and we also know that other mental health disorders are comorbid with anxiety. So if somebody has depression, yes, you can have depression on its own, but we also see a lot of people experience both depression and anxiety at the same time. So that's a very long but brief list of many of the things that cause anxiety. You did good though, you did. Um, I, I think 
the the title expert is going to be <laughs> something you have to reconsider. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you touched on depression, right? And I think mm-hmm. that is something that a lot of us have normalized, but has the seriousness of depression been overlooked in our society today? I definitely think it has been in many ways due to like a misunderstanding. One thing I don't think most people realize is that depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. It used to be the leading cause of disability, but I don't know if that holds true in 2022. Um, So I will say a leading cause. Um, But I do believe many people overlook or misunderstand depression um, because I don't know if you've experienced this, but I see on social media, especially a lot, like people that have never been depressed will be like, well, why don't you just get out of bed? Like, you know, or make other stigmatizing comments. Like why, like what's so hard about showering? Like what do you mean you can't hold a job? Like just get up and go to work. Like the rest of us have to do that. Um, And people also often have the image of depression as somebody like who can't just get out of bed and is sad and down all the time. I think of like Eeyore a lot from Winnie the Pooh. Like people think of that as depression, which it is for many people, but it can also show up as like irritability and anger, um, physical complaints, sleep or appetite changes. So I really think like the first, the lack of understanding about what depression is um, and how serious the illness can be in turn contributes to the misunderstanding or kind of brushing over the seriousness of it. And I think that this is highlighted a lot when like a celebrity dies by suicide. So I think of like Twitch Boss, which happened right around Christmas of um, 2022. Like how many people were commenting, well, he looks so happy. He was joking around all the time. And I think a lot of people, you know, put on that facade of I have to look happy or people don't know I'm struggling, um, maybe because they don't feel safe to reach out. Um, Maybe they don't know where to reach out, but then people are like, wait, how, how could that person kill themselves? They're so like, that's so selfish. Like they were so happy they had a family. And that just speaks to the lack of understanding about how serious depression can be for so many people. I love that you use the term illness because that Mm -hmm. in and of itself kind of gives some weight to it. Because like you said, if people say, oh, you know, go make something to eat or go take a shower, get out of bed, it really doesn't, doesn't, it it minimizes what it really is so greatly. And Mm -hmm. I think that having someone who is a professional to be able to say, no, it's these things can help us. And, and we need to change the, you know, the, the stigmas and misconceptions about it because otherwise people are going to continue to suffer and there's going to continue to be these incidences where we see more and more people saying, oh, well, he looks so happy or she looks so happy because mm-hmm. depression just goes, you know, under the radar and unnoticed. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to ask another question, and this kind of ties everything together, especially um, with, you know, you working with children, Um, family systems. If, if Mm -hmm. If we've had some generational trauma or some generational mental illness in our family system, mm-hmm. how can a, a dysfunctional family affect children their entire lives? This is such a great question. Another loaded question. You ask phenomenal questions. I just want to give you props to that. Um, Yeah, because, I mean, many of us do grow up in dysfunctional families. And the way I conceptualize a dysfunctional family is one that has, like, a lot of instability or conflict. So this may be abuse or neglect or that intergenerational trauma that you were talking about, mental illness, drug abuse. It can look a lot different, but I think of really that instability and conflict. So if a child grows up in a dysfunctional family, um, we know that early childhood is like so, so important for their development. 
what they learn in early life will carry on in adulthood um, unless they have access to therapy, go to therapy, get it, you know, process it, address it, things like that. So we know that kids that come from like unstable family environments, family environments that are abusive, there's substance abuse, exposed to violence, things like that. These children are more likely to have behavioral problems themselves, which can lead to subsequent consequences like getting in trouble at school, getting involved in DJJ, um, getting involved in like the wrong crowd of people, whatever that may be, something as severe as like gang involvement, arresting, or, like engaging in drugs, things like that, getting arrested. Or it could just be like getting kicked out of school, having to go to alternative schools, things like that. Um, children typically become more like withdrawn and isolated, have more difficulty expressing emotions, which in turn can lead to things like depression and anxiety, uh, low self-esteem. And then these things will carry on with them into adulthood because if that is an environment, if they kind of learned, oh, I need to be quiet or I need to isolate to not get hit, or they were only modeled instability or substance use, we see people following in those patterns. So the, the concerns that we had in childhood will continue into adulthood. So we see adults with depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, um, substance abuse issues. And most notably, and you highlighted this when asking me the question, is that intergenerational trauma. Unless these individuals get help, and that does not have to be professional help because I recognize that therapy is not accessible to so many people, but you know, a support group or a lot of self-reflection and actively choose not to repeat patterns, the patterns are often repeated. And I say this a lot of the time, especially working with kids and children, kids don't realize the environment that they grow up in is dysfunctional, abusive, bad, because that is the only thing they know. And it's not until maybe they go to a friend's house and realize that mom and dad aren't drinking, yelling, fighting, that they're like, wait a second, your parents don't do this or um, that's an, just an example I give. So really it, it's going to continue to pass down and it's not necessarily the fault of the adult in the sense that if they don't know anything different, if they weren't taught anything different, they don't know how to do differently. Um, but I think one thing that has been a positive about social media, a lot of people are talking about breaking intergenerational trauma patterns. So I'm hoping for future generations, we will see some of that change. I agree. And that was a, a fabulous um, answer. But this new generation, they're about it, man. They're going to therapy. They mm -hmm. are talking about everything. <laughs> they're feeling their feelings. Like there is no more just you know, sweeping things under the rug. And I love it. I love it too. As somebody that works primarily with Gen Z and I don't even know when Gen Z ends and the next generation begins, but I, the amount of times I've said in therapy, like I am just in awe of your generation or, you know, I know your generation is going to do great things. Like I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens when we're old and they're taking over. <laughs> right. <laughs> so something that we were just talking about and you mentioned on is the, the generational trauma and for so long things have just been the way that they've been right there's there was nobody who was standing up to you know have the conversations about the things that are wrong or the dysfunction right and and it seems like just over time we it it got normalized so my next question is, what is systemic desensitization? So this is a type of behavioral therapy. Um, it's most often used with like treatment of phobias, but also anxiety, PTSD. So going back to the trauma um, and basically uh, Systematic desensitization is a way that individuals are desensitized to things that are fear or anxiety provoking. So if you're doing it in a like formal setting, 
the first stage would be teaching the client how to do like relaxation techniques. So if we're bringing back to trauma, but also anxiety, uh, we know that our body is on high alert when we are uh, experiencing a trauma response, experiencing anxiety. So the first stage is teaching the client how to do relaxation techniques, get their body calm. So breathing exercises, um, guided meditation, muscle relaxation techniques. And then the client will create a fear hierarchy. So this is where they will write down all their fears, all the things that they're scared of. Um, so these could be specific phobias like spiders, or it could be, you know, um, more generalized anxiety, more generalized trauma. So if you experienced, you know, abuse in your home as a child, like a, a level 10 fear might be returning to my childhood home. Mm. And so then the client will rate their fears on a scale of one to 10. So assign a number of one being the least anxiety provoking, 10 being the most anxiety provoking, and then rank them. So, you know, this is my lowest level fear. This is my highest level of fear. And then together the, uh, client and clinician will work together to expose the client to those fears, to learn how to overcome and face those fears while pairing it with those relaxation and body techniques that they were already taught. So exposure to the fear can be done in different ways. So in vitro, which is the client imagining being exposed to the object of fear. So going back to, you know, if a level 10 fear is going back to my childhood home, where I was abused, we're not going to just send them to their childhood home. The first step is imagining what was it like being there and pairing that with the relaxation techniques. And once they're able to think about it without having that trauma response, then maybe we'd look at a picture of it and sit and process that while pairing with the relaxation techniques and work up to it. And maybe it's like driving by the house, going on the, et cetera. Um, in vivo would be the client is actually exposed to the fear. So usually we start in vitro and then move up to in vivo. And then more recently, if clinicians have access to this, there's a lot of use of virtual reality um, for systematic desensitization. So this would be things like, for example, if somebody's really scared of going on an airplane, it's a lot harder to get a client on an airplane and, and, real life. So they may use uh, virtual reality with airplane or like something like heights or elevators. Um, so yeah, it's that exposure to fear and pairing it with calming strategies to help overcome the anxiety and fear. That's so cool. And that really <laughs> is like baby steps to, to healing. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just throwing somebody in the, in the deep end of the pool and, you know, and sink or swim. Absolutely. Wow. We used to actually, I tell people this all the time, there used to be an intervention called flooding, which was literally that. So if you're scared of elevators, the therapist would just put you on an elevator. Be like, good luck. <laughs> we don't really do that anymore. <laughs> it, it was found to be more anxiety provoking and traumatizing. <laughs> oh, good thing. Good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about fears, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of times fear can be associated with uh, a bunch of disorders, especially like OCD. But we don't really, mm -hmm. I mean, well, you guys do, but like, I don't feel like um, us common folk know too much about OCD and the sense of what it really is. So there's OCD and then I guess there's subsets of OCD. So what are some subsets of OCD? Yeah. So OCD is definitely probably one of the most misunderstood diagnoses. Um, so we have the obsessions, which are really like the intrusive thoughts and then the compulsions, which are usually like behavioral rituals to reduce the distress that comes from those intrusive obsessions. So one subset, which probably is what most people think about when they think of OCD is contamination. So that is fear of germs, a person may engage in hand washing, they may have to clean to reduce feelings of distress about those intrusive thoughts of germs, getting an illness, etc. But there are a lot of other subtypes. So harm 
Um, so in this subtype, people will have intense thoughts about hurting themselves or hurting others. And because these thoughts are intrusive, they go against the values of the person. So this is most likely going to be somebody that's never been violent in their life, but they have intrusive thoughts say like, there's a kitchen knife right there. I'm going to stab my partner if I pick up that knife. Um, it's very irrational and it causes a lot of distress. So then they may engage in compulsive behaviors to calm their anxiety. Another uh, subtype of OCD that people don't really like to talk about is sexual. Um, so intrusive thoughts that are sexual in nature. nature. Um, so like I said, because with OCD, the intrusive thoughts go against the person's values, morals, who they are. The sexual thoughts are extremely distressing because they're usually about a person or situation that is off limits. So it might be intrusive thoughts about like sex with a child or a family member or rape. And that causes obviously a lot of distress for the person because they're like, I absolutely don't want to do this. Like I must be a horrible person for having these thoughts. And we do know, I'm not an OCD specialist, but I, I know a lot of them and this is one subtype of OCD that people are like terrified of talking about with their therapist because they're scared. Like, are you going to send me away? But the thing with OCD, the people don't act on these. They engage in the impulsion uh, compulsions to reduce the distress around them. Um, there's also a religious subtype. So people that have intrusive thoughts related to religion, religiosity, spirituality, feeling that like they're being punished by God, um, Another subtype that a lot of people probably think of when they think of OCD is like symmetry or quote unquote, like just right. So this is where people need to arrange or organize things um, until they're just right or doing things over and over and over again until it is done perfectly. Um, we may see people, if they bump their knee on a table, go back, back and bump the other one so it's even. Um, but with this, you know, and I hate this, but I know OCD specialists hate it even more. People be like, oh, I need my closet organized in a certain way because I'm so OCD. Like, no, if you like it organized, that is not OCD. It's more with, with uh, symmetry or like just right OCD, not having something done until there's this feeling of just right. And I wouldn't be able to explain that because I don't have this subtype of OCD causes significant distress. So that's why you see people doing things over and over and over and over and over again, maybe spending hours organizing their closet until it feels just right, because otherwise their distress and anxiety is really high. Um, so those are some of the subtypes. There are some other ones, but those are some of the most common ones. Thank you. You did a good job covering them. And, um, I feel you when you mention people saying like, oh, I got to do this because I'm so OCD. Like, it's really such a terrible classification that people are using when it really is something mm -hmm. that is significant, you know? And it's like when I hear people say, oh, I have a migraine, you have a headache. Because if you had a migraine, you would be literally yeah. like down, you know? Um, so thank Down, you for, for bringing some light to vomiting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So this one is a big one. And, um, I remember looking at your content and you, you talk a lot about suicide, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a good thing because there's a lot of shame and just negativity that's associated with it. But if we don't talk about it, then we can't really bring any healing or, or clarity to what it is and why it is. Um, so I wanted to ask you, are suicidal thoughts common? And if someone is having them, should they be involuntarily hospitalized? So the short answer is yes, they are common. And no, they should not necessarily be involuntarily hospitalized. Um, so the longer answer, suicidal thoughts are a spectrum. Um, we may have intrusive 
suicidal thoughts. The example I always give is you're driving over a bridge and you the thought pops into your mind, oh, what would happen if I just swerved my car off this bridge? Technically speaking, that is an intrusive suicidal thought, but it is fleeting. It is passing. You're not going to act on it. Um, and then, you know, kind of the next level up, we may have thoughts about death and mortality. Like, I would wonder what happened if I died. Is there, you know, a heaven after living? Um, would people care about me if I died? So more just about death in general, particularly your own death. Um, and then you have more like passive suicidal thoughts where it's more intentional about wanting to die, but no plan. So, you know, I, I wouldn't care if I didn't wake up tomorrow or I don't want to live like this anymore. I hear that a lot, especially in my chronic illness populations. It's not that they want to kill themselves, but they don't want to continue living the way they are. And then you have the next level of more active suicidal thoughts. Like I want to die. I am going to kill myself. Um, and then with these more active thoughts, we always as clinicians need to assess is their intent. So somebody might have thoughts, I want to die, but they have no intent to act on it. Um, but then we have people that I want to die. I, I will kill myself when I have the opportunity. This is how I'm going to do it. And I have access to those means. So with regard to the second part of your question about should they be involuntary hospitalized, I can only speak for what I do. I know not all therapists and psychologists practice the way I do. And I would argue, given my years of like research in this area and working with this population, I probably have a higher threshold for what would constitute me hospitalizing somebody. But if somebody just has thoughts, they have no intent, no plan, no access to means, I am not going to hospitalize them because the hospitalization is probably going to be more traumatic. So if a client comes to me and they're like, I'm having these thoughts of hurting myself, wanting to kill myself, I would assess for, do you have intent to do it, plans to do it, um, and the means to do it. And if they don't, um, or even if they do, but especially if they don't, the next step is safety planning. So I do not believe in suicide contracts. There's some people that still use them. There's not a lot of evidence to support them, which is basically like, I will not kill myself until the next session. What I do is a safety plan. So in the safety plan, we spend a lot of time going through like, what are the warning signs that you're feeling unsafe um, or suicidal? What are some coping skills you can use? Who are people that you can reach out to in your personal life? Who are professionals you can reach out to? What are your reasons for living? Um, locking up medications, weapons, things like that. So a comprehensive safety plan. Obviously, I work with children and teens. So I have the benefit if they have a supportive guardian in their life, I can bring them in and we can plan with the parent. Um, if I was working with adults, you know, if there was a partner, I would ask for permission. Hey, can we bring your partner into this conversation? Um, get you social support to keep you safe. And so the only time I would involuntarily hospitalize someone, because sometimes I've had patients be like, no, I think I need to go to the hospital. Cool. We will get you to the hospital. Is if the person has intent to hurt themselves, a plan to follow through with it, um, means to do it, and they're unwilling to safety plan with me. If they're like, no, like if I leave your office, I am going to do something to hurt or kill myself. That for me is the only time I would involuntarily hospitalize because I do recognize that inpatient psychiatric facilities can be more traumatizing to people than not. Um, and really it just comes down to safety. Am I able to, and is my client able to keep themselves safe? If the answer is yes, no matter how many resources we need to pull in, that is a less invasive um, choice than inpatient hospitalization. If the answer is no, it's my duty as a psychologist to keep my clients safe, and that would be the point um, where I would. So to summarize, for thoughts alone, no, it's all that extra steps and nuance um, that would constitute involuntary hospitalization. I remember I was 
nervous about asking that question because it's it's not an easy thing to talk about, right? I mean, it may be easier for you because Mm-mm. it's what you do. Um, but also, yeah. like, that's one of those things where you just kind of just, you know, you look away from that or what have you because it's uncomfortable. We We, without having any knowledge of what the reasons are, you know, we don't, we don't have the tools. Lay, lay people don't have the tools. If, if you have a friend who is, is mm-hmm. feeling like they want to harm themselves, you try to be as comforting and compassionate as possible. But we really don't know what to say. Um, so this, this was something mm-hmm. that I wanted to get your input on to be able to present so that it would be a tool for someone if they watch this episode. Now you know what to do. Now you know more about it. And you could perhaps, you know, comfort or console a friend and say, hey, you know what, if you're feeling like this, maybe you can watch this or maybe you can look this therapist up because this is what she specializes in. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And if you don't mind me adding one thing, I always encourage people to do, because I know that this is probably the topic that people are most terrified to bring up with their therapist because they're like, am I going to be hospitalized? So what I encourage everybody to do, there should be informed consent at the beginning where the therapist goes over limits to confidentiality, harm to self or others is always a limit to confidentiality, but asking them, you know, Hey, do you mind going over your limits of confidentiality? Again, can you explain in more detail, you know, if somebody were to come to you with thoughts of suicide, self-harm, what steps would you take? At what point do you hospitalize? Like ask those questions to see if um, you would feel safe disclosing. That's great advice. Great advice. Um, I think that the way you've handled these questions has just been so good. Um, They were really hard questions to tackle. And I think that because of your knowledge and expertise, you were easily able to do it. So um, I'm really grateful that you agreed to do this with me and that you were able to use um, all of your skills and knowledge to be able to present something that can be helpful to so many people. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for bringing me on um, and asking such great questions. Like I said to you before we hit record, I've done plenty of podcasts and I was really, really looking forward to doing this one because you asked such great questions, such a variety of questions and covered a lot of things that I think a lot of people would relate to, even if they don't relate to every single thing. Um, So I'm hoping that people really enjoy this conversation. Me too. Hopefully we can get it out there. So last question, if you could, if you could use your platform, to encourage someone who may be struggling with the idea of therapy or on the fence about talking to someone about their big feelings or, you know, things that they're hiding um, and they're scared to talk to someone about, what would you say? It is scary. Therapy is scary and it's uncomfortable and it is worth it. The first therapist that you see may not be the right fit and that's okay. So it's about finding the person that works well for you and that you feel comfortable to share those big feelings with, but it's okay to be scared because it is scary and it is uncomfortable and with the right person, it will be worth it. Perfect. Well, Jessica, thank you so much um, for for doing this with me, for putting your knowledge and expertise on display the way you have, um, for seeing me and seeing value in doing this with me. You know, I, I don't have a background in psychology or healing of, of any sort, but I just decided one day that I was ready to to heal the things that I was hiding, and I started my journey. And the things that I learned, I wanted to be able to, to give to everybody that I, I know, or, you know, anybody I come in contact with. And I really wasn't 
getting the response that I felt like I should based on what I was sharing, you know? So I, I kind of thought to myself, what can I do to give this more weight and more value? And it was talking to you guys and specifically the, the topics that you specialize in. So I'm really grateful that you did this with me. Um, thank you for your time and your knowledge and your expertise and, and everything. Thank you so much for having me on. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. If someone wants to find you online or on social media, where can they find you? Absolutely. So I'm most active on both Instagram and TikTok. It's at Jessica Lee PhD, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-L-E-I-G-H PhD. Um, I do have like YouTube, Twitter, website, but all of those links are um, in my Instagram bio. So that's probably the best place to go and click on all that. Gosh, perfect. All right. Well, Jessica, thank you so much again for your time and for what you do and the way you do it and for who you are. Thank you as well.